I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Next step. Are you glad this morning to be in God's house? I always look forward uh, to spending my time with you. Uh, this is, I can say, I preach all over the country. And this is one of my favorite places to preach in because all of you have been through so much and there's always so much joy present in this church. There's always so much joy present in this church. If you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, I want to invite you to turn in there with me to the book of 1 John, to 1 John chapter 4. And Cook, can you indulge me just for a moment? Uh, in the context, in my tradition, uh, whenever we read God's word, whenever it is publicly read in, in an attempt to honor the word of God, we always stand to our feet. So if you are able, could you stand to our feet as I read God's word out aloud? First uh, John chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 7. I'm reading out of the New International Version of God's Holy Word. Uh, but please feel free to follow in whatever version of God's Word you have on hand. My Bible reads this way. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Verse 9. This is how God showed us his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. I want to focus especially on, on verse 7 where the author of the letter of 1 John suggests that our ability to love determines our spiritual fraternity. That our ability to love determines our spiritual paternity because the author of 1 John says this, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Uh, the word of God for the people of God. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for your word, uh, because your word contains power. Your word has the power to transform. Your word has the power to change. Your word has the power to work miracles. So we pray, Father God, that we would experience the power of your word in our persons this morning, Lord God. As we encounter your word, my prayer for your people is this, that they would be changed through the experience of your word. As always, Father God, whenever your word is preached, uh, we will have a genuine encounter with you. So we pray, Father, that nothing arises to distract us from this encounter, especially not the shortcomings and the failings of your preacher. 
but Father, that you and you alone would be exalted as your word is explained. And we pray this in the mighty and the matchless name of Jesus. And all who are God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated in the presence of our God. My father, unfortunately, passed away when I was only 10 years old, leaving me to be raised by a single mother. And though she tried to keep me connected with my father's side of the family, circumstances often prevented me from seeing them. Therefore, I was overjoyed when I recently had the opportunity to reconnect with my father's side of the family at a recent funeral. I had not seen some uncles, some cousins, some aunts in well over 30 years, and conversely, they had not seen me. So I arrived early, wanting to give myself enough time to touch base with people and remind them who I was, but there was no need. My cousins, my uncles, my aunts, and, and close family friends, many of whom I had not seen in decades, immediately recognized who I was without me having to tell them. They pointed to me and said, that's John's son right there. There was no doubt in their minds who was my daddy? This recognition prompted me to look back at old family photos to see the extent of my resemblance to my father. And I discovered this terrifying truth. I look absolutely nothing like my father. My father, at his highest weight and at his tallest, was five foot five, maybe five foot six, and 140 pounds. I hadn't been five foot five and 140 pounds since the sixth grade. My father was balding, and I don't just mean a, a little balding. My father had a full George Jefferson. I have to cut my hair every week. That's how fast my hair grows back. My father had black eyes. I have brown eyes. He had a round jawline. Mine is square. He had a protruding nose and thin lips. My nose isn't big and my lips aren't thin. One of my favorite photos of my father and I was the last photo of my father and I. It was a 10-year-old me sitting on my father's lap. I I took a look at that picture, and that picture looked like a, a tall, grown boy sitting on a stranger's lap. That's how little I resembled my father. I, I was so confused that I wanted to pick up the phone and call my mother and say, hey, lady, what she was doing 46 years ago? <laughs> it's all right to tell me. Was you seeing somebody else other than my dad? But though my mom is 80-something years old, she'd still slap the hell out of me. So I know I couldn't make that accusation. So rather, I called a, an aunt of mine. 
someone who was exceptionally close with my father and someone who, who knew me as a child. And, and, and she was the first person to identify me as my father's son. And, and I wanted to know, given the, the lack of any physical resemblance, why was she able to identify me as my father's son? And, and she told me, she, she knew that I was my father's son the minute I walked in because of how I walked. She knew I was my father's son when she heard my voice. She, she knew I was my father's son because of the way I carried myself. She said there were, there were certain traits about my father that were evidenced in me. There were certain things that my father did that I also did. And, and, and really, this is the argument of the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 9, that, that if God is your father, there are certain things about your father that should be evident in you. There are certain traits that your father has that you, as his children, should also have. If God is your daddy, then you should have the capacity to love like your father. First John chapter four, verses seven through nine is the apostle John's answer to the question, who's your daddy? This is the second time in the span of two chapters that John has attempted to answer this specific question. For John, all of humanity come from one of two spiritual ancestries. All of humanity either are children of the devil and they inherit certain spiritual traits that come from him or they are children of God and we inherit certain traits that come from him. And earlier on in chapter three in the letter of 1 John, John helps us to identify is Satan our spiritual father. He says we know that we are children of the enemy based on how we hate. In 1 John chapter three, John identifies Cain as belonging to the evil one. Cain was the firstborn son of Adam and Eve, and Cain, along with his old younger brother Abel, the two grew up and they began to offer sacrifices in keeping with their respective trades. Both men would offer God something to show their devotion. For Cain, it was a certain portion of his produce that came from the land, but but for Abel, the Bible tells us, he offered God the first fruits of his flock. God accepted Abel's offering, but for whatever reason, God rejected Cain's offering. The rejection of Cain's offering left him furious and disappointed. God would even come to Cain later and say and suggest that his offering would be accepted if he did what was right. Seemingly, God was not concerned with the type of offering that the worshiper gave, but God was more concerned with the heart 
of the worshiper. And it was because Cain did not have the right heart that his offering was rejected. But rather than changing his heart, the Bible tells us Cain began to hate his brother Abel. And until one day, Cain called his brother Abel into the field and, and murdered him. John sees Cain's actions towards his brother as being the quintessential example of what it means to hate someone. Cain became for John the example of a character who defies God and despises man. Cain was devoid of both faith and love. And John later writes in verse 15 of chapter 3, that we go the route of Cain whenever we hate our brother or sister. We become murderers just like Cain was whenever we hate one another and we evidence who our true spiritual father is. Cain was jealous of his brother Abel and, and John makes a connection between jealousy and hate. For, for John, hate and jealousy are intimately connected. Hate is simply uncontrolled jealousy, and envy is hate that has no boundaries. Hate is observable jealousy in action and practice. Cain resented his brother Abel because Abel was doing right and he was doing wrong. Cain did not want to see his brother's, Abel's brother, his brother's offering accepted. Cain, rather than picking himself up, would rather see his brother brought down. And Cain was not focused on his own shortcomings and failures, but he was obsessed with his brother's successes and triumphs. Cain would not accept responsibility for his own actions, but rather placed blame on his brother. And for all these reasons, John tells us in John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, that Cain is the example that we should not follow. And we become spiritual siblings of Cain and spiritual children of the devil whenever we are unable to rejoice in our brother's or sister's successes. We become like Cain whenever our heart burns with anger, when something positive happens to our brother and sister, but it doesn't happen for us. We become like Cain whenever someone does something right, but we don't see it as an example to follow, but as a reason to resent. If you can't be happy when something good happens to your brother, sister. If the only time you celebrate God's blessings are when those blessings fall on you and not on other people. If it pains you to see good things happen to other people, then according to John in 1 John chapter 3, the devil is your daddy. If you can't celebrate when God does other things for other people, 
then something is wrong with you. <laughs> and the devil is your daddy. Now in chapter 4, John teaches us how to identify the children of God. If the children of the enemy have in common the quality of hate, then the children of God have in common the quality of love. Love is an essential quality of God, and it is a trait that he passes on to his children. And John connects love with God in, in two powerful ways. First, in, in verse 7, where, God, where John says God is the source of love. John says love is from God. John is saying more than just like everything else in the created order that love originates in God. Rather, John is saying that because God is the source of love, it is God and God alone who should shape our understanding of love. And it is God and God alone who should define what we think of love. God is the source of love. Therefore, God is the author of love. And therefore, God should provide the definition of love. And without God shaping our understanding of love, love for us would never move beyond emotionalism and sentimentality. We would profess and practice a kind of love that falls short of what real love is. Without God defining for us what love is, our love would be selfish, manipulative, and perverse. I, I know this because a study was conducted of people who stayed in abusive relationships. They experienced emotional, verbal, and some even experienced physical abuse. And all of them said that they remained in the relationship because they felt loved. Some women, even to the point of being hospitalized and almost killed because of the physical abuse that they were doing, continued to return to that abusive relationship in the name of love. And this says something about what happens when our understanding of love is defined by the world and not by God. Because independent of God, according to the world, love and abuse can go hand in hand. And I'm trying to help somebody this morning. Some of us have allowed our understanding of love to be shaped by the world and therefore we allow people to profess love for us even though they are abusing us. But as God defines love, love can never be abusive. Karen Job in her commentary on 1 John says this, 
because of our sinful fallen nature, we have lost the ability to define love, much less practice love. It is God who shows us that love can never be abusive. Rather, love must always be uplifting. It is God who demonstrates to us that, that love can never be selfish. Rather, love has to always be selfless. It is God who teaches us that love is not perverse, but rather love is always purifying. And it is God who shows us that love does not manipulate, but rather love always seeks that which is, the be that which is in the best interest of the other. And for God, John, for John, God defines what love means and what love is through the cross. The cross of Christ shows us that love is sacrificial. Love is other centered and love is giving. And if our understanding of love and if our practice of love does not match how God defines love, then the love that is being professed and the love that is being practiced is not love. If we don't love according to God's standard, then we are not loving. And if we are not being loved according to God's standard, then we are not being loved. It's because God is the source of love. Only God can define what love is. John says that God is the source of love. Therefore, he and he alone defines love. Then in verse 8, John says that God is the essence of love. Therefore, everything God does is a reflection of his love for us. One of the most remarkable statements about the nature of God in the Bible is what John says about God in, in verse 8. In verse 8, at the end of verse 8, John says that God is love. Elsewhere in scripture, we find statements such as God is righteous or, or God is good. But these statements can be said to be descriptions of God's actions. At the end of verse 8, what John is describing is the quality of God's person. God is love means that in his purest essence, the quality that best describes God is his love for his people. What John is saying this, you cannot separate love from God any more than you could separate the heat from the sun. If you take away the heat from the sun, then the, you don't have the sun. And if you take away love from God, then you no longer have God. And if you could somehow cut God in half and look inside of God, here's what you find. Pure and unadulterated love. And because God is love, John means that everything that God does is a reflection 
of his inward character of love. God's provision is an example of his supplying love. God's protection is an indication of his covering love. God's mercy is an example of his redeeming love and his grace is a revelation of his saving love. And it's because God is love that every action of his must be viewed in light of his loving nature. So much so that even the things that we would not consider as loving, if God ordained it, or if God allowed it to happen in your life, it must serve a loving purpose. You just missed your shouting point right there. If I could walk correctly, I'd I, I, I try to emphasize this as much as I can. God is love. That's his essence. And because he is love, everything he does is a reflection of the love he has for you. So if he ordained it, or if he allowed it to happen, and we know that everything that you're going through right now, either God ordained it, or God allowed it to happen, it must serve a loving purpose in your life. That means all the pain you're going through right now, the trial that you're experiencing right now, the suffering, the hurt, and the pain that you're feeling right now, since it comes from God, it must serve a loving purpose in your life. Some of you don't believe me. Let me put it this way. First, second Samuel chapter 12 re re records the end of the David and Bathsheba episode. It's the end of an illicit affair that David had with a woman named Bathsheba. And as a result of this illicit affair, Bathsheba became pregnant, leading David to try to conceal that pregnancy through nefarious acts. At first, he summoned, he summoned Bathsheba's husband, a man named Uriah, and David did all he could do to entice Uriah to sleep with his wife in hopes that after sleeping with his wife, the child that was really David's, Uriah would think was his own. And when those attempts failed, Uriah, da David plotted successfully to have Uriah murdered. And with Uriah finally out the way, David claimed Bathsheba as his own. And the child that was to be born, David could also claim as his own without having to explain the details of the child's conception. David thought he had gotten away with everything until he was confronted by God through the prophet Nathan. And Nathan told him that the child that Bathsheba would give birth to would die. And, and remember what David did after he received this news? The Bible tells us that David prayed and fasted. And David cried out to God night and day, pleading that God 
would allow this innocent child to live. But even though David prayed, even though David fasted, even though David cried out to God, the child still died. Have you ever prayed about something? Have you ever cried out to God about something? Have you ever fasted and nothing happened? God did not respond to your cries, your prayers, your fasting uh, the way you had hoped. If that's ever happened to you, then, then you could understand what David must have been going through. David could not see the, the bigger picture. God had to allow that child to die in order to not compromise the purpose that David had. Had that child continued to live, then the people of Israel, they're not ignorant. They, they would have been able to put two and two together. After her period of mourning, Bathsheba gives birth, marries David quickly and then gives birth to a child and the child is born in, in five, six months. <laughs> David, you, you, you must have done something wrong. God was protecting David's purpose by allowing the child to die. And David would ultimately recognize that because David and Bathsheba would have a second child. And though you and I commonly refer to that second child by his nickname, Solomon, his given name was Jedediah, a name that means beloved by God. David ultimately came to the point where he realized that even though God didn't answer my prayers, even though God didn't allow the thing that I was calling out and crying for out to him to happen, even though God still allowed my child to die, I've got evidence right now in the life of another child that God gave me, that God still loves me. And there are things that God has allowed to happen in your life that seem inconsistent with what John has said is the true nature of God. But just because God has allowed to happen something in your life that doesn't feel like love, doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. Just wait a minute. Your Jedediah is coming too. Your Jedediah will be that thing that God gives to you that will show you in spite of everything that he's allowed to happen to you, he still loves you. Give it a moment. Your Jedediah is coming. It may feel like what you're going through right now is not God truly loving you. It may hurt right now. There may be some trials right now, but trust me on this. Because God's essence is love, it's impossible for him to act in a way that does not reflect his love for you. Your Jedediah is coming soon.
And it's because God is the source of love. And it's because God is the essence of love that there is this expectation that we who are God's children reflect his love. The opening exhortation of verse 7, John writes, Beloved, let us love one another. There are some traits that we expect a child to inherit from their parents. Some physical element or, or even some attribute that shows that this child belongs to this parent. And the attribute that shows that you come from God is your ability to love. And because throughout the letter of 1 John, John has been describing what God's love is like. If you are God's child, you would love just like God. It's because God's love is sacrificial that your love for others need to be sacrificial as well. It's because God's love is unconditional that your love for others need to be unconditional as, as well. And it's because God's love is demonstrated by his action towards us. Our love for others must be demonstrated by our actions towards them. And because God loves in a way that seeks to meet what is the most urgent need in the life of the object of his love, our love for others must seek to meet the needs, the most urgent needs uh, in the life of those we claim to love. Earlier in the letter of 1 John, John clarifies what it means to love like God. John writes that, Dear children, let us love not in words or speech, but in actions and truth. For John, genuine Christian love is not merely saying I love you and then doing nothing. Some of us have gotten used to doing stuff like that where we just say I love you and then forget about that person. But for John, love must always be demonstrated in tangible ways. John is not saying that there are no benefits to these verbal expressions of love. At, at times, one of the most loving thing that we can do on behalf of people who are struggling is to share a kind word, to say to them that we love them. But, but most of the time, Words are not enough to convey how much we love people. Most of the time, telling people that we love them is not enough. You've got to show people that you love them. If you've never heard of, of Gary Chapman's classic book, The Five Love Languages, then, then I urge you, do yourself a favor. Buy it and read it. It is one of the most effective books in in helping to build healthy relationships that you will ever read. Love languages refer to how people receive love, and Chapman theorizes that so many people complain about living in unloving relationships, not because of the absence of love, but because their partner fails to express love 
in a manner or a style that they can understand. And though the book was written primarily for couples, this book can benefit people in all types of relationships. Chapman argues that there are five ways to express love and only one of them is a verbal expression. There are five ways to express love and only one of them has to do with words. The, the other four, quality time, gift giving, physical touch and acts of service all have to do with our actions. We love like God when we love people, not just through our action, our words, but also through our actions. And as children of God, it is our ability to reflect God's love that confirm we are his children. John says, whoever loves is born of God. And it's this trait that confirms our parentage. It's almost as if John is giving us through this text a DNA test. The study of DNA has made possible some major achievements. DNA can help solve crimes, but most of us, if we're being real with ourselves, know DNA as a tool used to determine parentage, especially with contested cases. And, and, and let's be honest, most of us became familiar with DNA through the Maury Povich show. <laughs> it was one of the longest syndicated television shows in history. It aired for over 30 years, and, and at first, it attempted to be a, a serious talk show dealing with serious issues, but, but the show quickly devolved into a tabloid talk show dealing with issues from cheating and abusive men out of control teens to shocking secrets revealed. But most of you know that show, The Maury Show, because of its famous paternity test. For over 20 years, there has been enough women in this country who had no idea who their baby daddy was that Maury could run thousands of episodes filled with these type of questions. You guys remember the format, right? The format is simple. A, a mother would bring a, uh, a potential father to the show and, and she would claim that she was a thousand percent sure. <laughs> Some of y'all watch Maury a little too much. I'm a thousand percent sure that this man is the daddy. And as evidence, look at the physical traits they share. Look at his eyes. Look at his nose. Look at his lips. That, that man has to be the father. But, but we know that, that physical traits don't always prove that this person in question is the father. The only conclusive way to determine paternity is through the DNA test. And only after the DNA test 
can be, uh, has, has, uh, and only after the DNA results has been given can paternity be established. And this is what, what John is doing in this text. He's establishing paternity. Here, here's what he's saying. If you love like God, if you're willing to sacrifice like God, if, if you're willing to show people mercy like God has shown you mercy, if you're willing to, to, to forgive like God has forgiven, if, if you're willing to serve others because of love like God has served you because of love, let me, let me read you the results. When it comes to the case of God being your father or not, if you love like God, then here's the good news for you this morning. God is your father. Will you pray with me?